Acts 28, last week we were aboard a ship that was headed for Rome and experienced one of the great adventures of the Bible. And I, I hope you still have a little sea spray on you from last week. That was a real great journey. I enjoyed it. It's like one of the great odysseys of old. A ship full of 276 souls where for two weeks a tempest literally laid upon them. They did not see sun or star. They were absolutely convinced, we're going to die. All hope is lost. And in fact, they lost a lot. They lost the ship. They lost the cargo, the grain, the stuff. All, I count them all, 276 men were able to swim or drift upon driftwood to the shore, and they come, came to discover that they were in the hands of God. That one lone voice of faith, Paul the Apostle, Paul the prisoner, rose up like this lighthouse in the darkness declaring, we will be saved. Paul the Apostle demonstrating great faith, and he, his faith wasn't rooted in his circumstances that things would just get better because they were going to get worse. His faith was rooted in the word and will of God. He knew that he was going to make it to Rome. And in fact, we came to see last week that nothing can keep God's will from being fulfilled in our lives. It doesn't matter what we face, nothing keeps us from the gates of Rome, whatever Rome may be in our individual lives. So as we concluded our last uh, message together, we saw these words that have been etched in the text. They rise up as, as words of hope for the storm tossed throughout all of the centuries. Acts 27, so just look back to the last verse of Acts 27, verse 44. In fact, the last few words of verse 44, and it says, And so it was that all were brought safely to land. As promised, all made it to shore. And I want to make sure that we don't miss it because it's so easy when we're caught up in the storms of this life and we're convinced that we're going to die and we're going to sink and we're going to get swallowed by the waves and then circumstances change and things get better. So like there's those times where you go unemployed for a long period of time and you're convinced that everything's going to fall apart and you're stressed out and you're anxious and you're worried and then you land that new job and you're like, oh, everything's cool. And you just like cruise on down the road and you forget to take a mental snapshot it was not our creative thinking or our calculated planning that carried us through. It's not the anxiety and the worry that preserved us. It wasn't the frantic and thrashing, splashing of trying to save ourselves that led us to the shore. No, it is God who carried us. And we need to remember all of the times that God has carried us individually and collectively through storms as memory markers. You need to hold on to that stuff because later on in life, you get to another storm, you need to look back on those memory markers and go, oh yeah, he's going to deliver me. And so we don't miss it. The author, Luke the historian, records almost the same phraseology, all were brought safely to land, at the end of chapter 27 and at the beginning of chapter 28 where it reads, after we were brought safely through. And that phrase, brought safely through, that is a phrase that is the translation of one single Greek word. Uh, that Greek word is diasotso, and it means to be rescued or delivered from a hazard or danger. It means to be carried. And so as believers, we have to recognize that we're not the victims of circumstance. In fact, we're not the victims of happenstance. We're not the captives of coincidence. We, in fact, are people who are loved by God... 
And we are carried along by his providential care for us, that we are the sheep of the sovereign shepherd, just as we saw this morning in Psalm 23. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's to varying degrees, we all at some point in time of our life have walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and it's scary. But then we come to realize that the Lord is with us, and he brings us through to safety. The storm-tossed men are now up on the shore of this unknown island. As we saw last week, they very quickly identify the island. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. It says, after we were brought safely through. Who brought them safely through? Well, their own ingenuity, right? They're planning. They're smarts. They were smarty smarts. In fact, that's what got, no, it was the Lord. And I just want to add to that, don't take credit. Don't look back and redefine your storm and go, oh, well, you know, I was really driven out. But actually, I was really smart and I crafted my way on out. No, give God the glory. He carried me through that. So they wash up on shore and they find out very quickly. It says, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Fascinating that they didn't recognize it at first, but I think that's just the nature of crisis. When we're in crisis, even common things seem unrecognizable. The island of Malta was often traveled by trade. Those boats that traveled up and around Alexandria from Egypt, the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, often swung by the island of Malta. It was a great port for those sailing the Mediterranean and Adriatic, Adriatic seas. But in the crisis, they didn't recognize, and so they wash up on this particular island. In fact, it wasn't to port there. They were literally dragged across the Mediterranean. I quote here from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says they were shipwrecked on Malta, a small island 60 miles south of Sicily. Malta had good harbors and was ideally located for trade. Is that why they sailed there? Do you all remember that from last week? They were like, oh, Malta's ideal for porting, porting a boat. Is that what you call it? Passage porting? Anyway, that's, no, it was a storm that carried them there. In fact, they were dragged 600 miles off course. Have you ever felt like you were just like dragged off course and like thrown up on some crazy island, some job where you're like, what the heck am I doing here? Or some relationship or some place in life where you're like, how did I get here? Well, that's exactly what they experienced on the island called Malta. In fact, this is, this is a picture uh, of St. Paul's Bay. It's a little different today than it was in the first century. I, I don't know if the yacht was there. Uh, when they came dragging up out of the water, doubtful, or if the cabana chairs were there. In fact, they weren't met by cabana or yacht, but you can go stay there. Doesn't that look nice? Wouldn't that be great to go there as a church and just go hang out? We could say it's a Bible study. Where are you guys going? We're going to go study the Bible on Malta. So here they are. They wash up on shore. They aren't greeted by uh, the, the big cabanas. In fact, they were greeted by the native Maltese people. Listen to this. This is fascinating to me. The native, oh, and by, no, I'm not going to warn you. The native people showed us unusual kindness. Okay, so just highlight that in your brain, unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain and it was cold. And so it was like this last week in North Texas. So it was rainy and it was cold. And the Maltese people, they build a fire and extend what is written as unusual kindness or gracious hospitality to foreign strangers. The Maltese people extended gracious hospitality to foreign strangers, which serves, I think, as a great model for us. We have historically, I say we, uh, as 
United States citizens, we've been known historically, well, I say that's kind of an idealistic rendering of history, but we have some level of hospitality in our past, uh, that no matter who washes up on our shores, that we're called to be hospitable, welcoming, and kind, right? I mean, it seems like we are to embody, not even spiritually, but just as a culture and as a people, the words that are etched in bronze that stand as a memorial and testimony to the world on our statue of liberty on Liberty Island in New York City. I quote here, interesting poem, Emma Lazarus, Jewish gal, uh, a few, few decades ago, well, 1800s, penned this poem entitled The New Colossus. I don't know if this was spiritually motivated or what, but listen to these words. Mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, mother of exiles. From her beaconed hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cried she with silent lips. But give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Family, I, I say this this morning with a mix of sensed caution. I fear that at times our political sensibilities have given way to hardened hearts. Please hear this. We are, not just as Americans, and I'm going to stress that we're not American Christians, we're Christian Americans. Okay, there's a huge distinction between the two, by the way. Because an American Christian, they, we would elevate our own ethic, cultural ethic, the... the uh, the Constitution, that becomes our ethic, and then below that becomes our Christian faith. But we swap that, and the reality is we are Christ-centered Americans, so the Christ ethic supersedes our American ethic. Do you all agree, disagree? Okay. There's, some, there's something that, there is a precedent on our faith. So I want us to say this. Don't forget that we are to be first a people hospitable, regardless of people uh, God send, the people God sends our way. And so I say this, please, please be careful the way that you process and speak of or ride of or relay of this Honduran foot train that's coming up north. It's filled with people that God loves, whom Christ died for. And in that, we are to love them also. Amen? Amen? Not amen? I see this passage, I see in this passage unusual hospitality towards foreigners. These Maltese people extend a gracious hand of welcome, which I think is significant. Moving on. Also, speaking of hand, uh, Paul gets about serving with his hands. Paul the apostle, Paul the prisoner, is seen first as a servant. He is a leader, yes, but he's supremely a servant. And so in verse 3, he begins to gather some sticks. <coughs> he doesn't realize that he's also gathering a viper in his hand, which... Which, gosh, this is crazy. Verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. We'll get to the initial reaction in just a moment. I don't know how you'd respond if a viper affixes to your hand. But the Maltese people were shocked. And they saw in this image, this picture of Paul having this snake affixed to his hand, they go, oh, 
This is the writing of justice. Because he is, this man has escaped from the sea and now has a snake that is poisoning him and ultimately going to kill him. And so there's this sense of karma and the writing of the scales of justice. Look at verse 4. It says, When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, Ah, the guy's a murderer. Like they immediately assumed because something bad had happened to him that he had done something wrong. And we have a tendency to do the same thing. Like when something goes wrong in somebody's life, we go, ah, I finally caught up with them. You know, there's this sense of the riding of scales of justice. All of that is thrown out of whack, by the way, because God sends his rain and his sunshine on the just and the unjust. Ugh, doesn't that just drive you crazy? Karma gets slaughtered. Anyway, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. The Maltese bystanders looked at the reptile hanging onto Paul's hand by its fangs and drew their own conclusions. It was plainly the will of heaven that this man should lose his life. No doubt he was a murderer and Nemesis was on his trail. However, verse 5, Paul responds. He just like shakes it off. He, however, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Like he's just like, oh, okay. And he goes back. I'm like thinking of how I would have responded. <laughs> Maybe. Caught you sleeping. I mean, I get a bug on me, and I start doing, like, kung fu moves, like a snake. Nonetheless, Paul just shakes it off into the fire, and I love how the Maltese people, they're just like, we can't look away. It's like when you see something terrible about to happen, you're like, oh, I shouldn't, I'm going to look. They watch with this morbid expectation. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, verse 6. But... When they waited a long time, they saw no misfortune come to him. They changed their minds. They're like, oh, he's not a murderer. He's a god, of course. And I see in that just the fickle heart of humanity. At one moment, we're ready to like write somebody off. And in the next minute, we're ready to elevate them to like almost a god status. And I love the picture that we see in Acts 14, because I think it informs how Paul would have responded before the Maltese people. I don't know if you remember back all those weeks ago when we made it to the city of Lystra on the very first missionary journey, Paul healed a man that had been born crippled. In fact, God healed the man through Paul. And the people of Lystra started crying out in Laconian, he's a god, he is Zeus. And they began to worship Paul, and Paul and Barnabas render their clothes, and they're like, no, 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 no. We are just like you. Paul was constantly jumping off the pedestal of exaltation that people try to put him on. Be careful, family. When people try to exalt you, be prone to jump off the pedestal. Give all the glory to God. Do not take for yourself the glory that is due the Lord. And I believe that even though it's not here in the the verses, Paul, I believe, immediately gave glory to God and then was invited to this incredible feast hosted by the chief of the island. And as I look at this, I, I see it clearly. Hospitality was first found in the leader, and it made its way down to the people. Ethic has a tendency of trickling down. This is powerful. Now, that in the neighborhood, 
I was trying to figure out, like, what kind of neighborhood. Was it a suburban neighborhood, like suburban sprawl of, like, the native people? But there was a neighborhood of that place where lands belonging to who? Oh, you don't see it. It's not there. Oh, I have no idea. It's not on there. Ah, there it is. The chief man of the island. So who is the chief man? Who would you, how would you describe this person? He's the dude. He's like the local island dude. Named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Again, that concept of hospitality. There would have been food and singing and dancing, feasting and celebration. The chief would have pulled out all the stops. And over that three days, Paul comes to discover that the chief leader has a father who's sick. Paul hears about this father and immediately goes about to care for this person who's, who's sick. Verse 8, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Fascinating phraseology, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And this reads, if you can see it in the original language, it reads like a clinical study. What was Luke, by the way, the author of the book of Acts? What was he by trade? He was a physician and a historian. So you would expect to see in his writing uh, great attention to detail as far as historicity, the historical account. But you would also expect to see some type of, of medical training or terminology in the text. And we actually do here in this verse. In fact, the word fever and the word dysentery are both clinical terms. In fact, dysentery is the Greek word dysenterion, where we get the English word dysentery. And it referred to most likely an infection caused by a microorganism. This is going to be important here. Hold on this. So New Illustrated Bible says this. The fever was possibly Malta fever, which was common in Malta, Gibraltar, and other Mediterranean islands. The microorganism has since been traced to the milk of Maltese goats. The fever usually lasted for four months. That's a long fever. And sometimes could be as long as two or three years. And there were all kinds of other symptoms of this particular fever or dysentery. So we have no idea how long this guy suffered. But what I do see in Paul, listen to this. Paul did four specific things that I believe we all can emulate when those are suffering around us. First, he visited. What does it mean when you visit somebody in their trial? It means you care. How easy to fire off an email or to send off a text message. But when you actually take time to visit somebody, it's a picture of care. Secondly, he prayed. He showed himself to be under the authority of God. He didn't have authority in and of himself. Third, he laid on hands. It's a picture of showing faith. We are to lay on hands and we are to pray over people and their ailments and their sicknesses. And then fourth, he healed them. In fact, it is God who gave Paul the power to heal. And what we see here is an interesting crossroads of discussion as it relates to sickness and healing. So I have a question for you. What role... Cinnamon roll. No. What role does prayer, laying on of hands, medicine, and treatment, what role do those play, those two roles? What's that? They're both used for healing. Well, there's some question because in the church there is some erroneous teaching that as believers... And then through the cross, we have the power to heal sickness, so there shouldn't be any sicknesses. We should be able to heal all sicknesses just by faith. We don't need to seek out medical treatment. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are the science minds who are looking over and going, you all are wacko. Crazy, 
crazy people, you need medicine. And then right in the middle is where I believe we should be. We should pray, lay on hands, but we should also seek medicine and treatment. I believe both is evidence in verse 9. This is really cool stuff. And so when this had taken place, when what had taken place? Well, the healing. When Publius' father was healed, the rest of the people on the island were like, oh, the clinic's open. And so those who had diseases, they also came and were what? Interesting, it's not the word healed. They were cured. Two different Greek words. And so I think both are working right here. I believe God was powerfully and uniquely working through Paul as an apostle to heal. I believe he had the power to heal. But I also believe that God was working through a physician like Luke. Isn't that cool for some of our healers by trade, right? You guys work in a profession where you balance both faith and medicine. I say this uh, to our friends who, who work in the medical field. Some of us work in the medical field. I think it's brilliant that we both pray and seek treatment. And so sometimes God heals through prayer, which I've, we've seen. We've seen people healed of uh, terminal sickness through prayer, uh, but also through medicine. And so I see it as a, like a combination of both. Sometimes God heals through prayer, other times through medicine, sometimes through both. But ultimately, when are we truly healed? This is a toughie. Because at death is when we finally take off this tent that is riddled with stuff like sickness and cancer and diabetes. We, get, we have plagues, things that, that really affect this flesh. Well, we, in death, we breathe our last in this, and we open our eyes. We breathe our first breath in eternity and total healing, and there will be a day when we take on our glorified bodies. No more sickness, no more tears. That is the ultimate healing. And so we are given a glimpse into how God powerfully worked on this island and also why God had them throw up being washed up on that beach. Sometimes we think to ourselves, why would God allow this to happen in my life? Why did I end up here? And some of you may be thinking that this morning. Why did I end up here? Why did I end up in this particular job? Why did I end up in this particular relationship? Why did I end up in this particular family? Sometimes God has us in a particular place to powerfully use you and use us. In verse 10, it says, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so the Maltese people were very grateful. They were there on the island for a matter of uh, months, three months exactly. And before they leave, they fill the boat with all this stuff. But what we need to realize is that the presence of Paul and the presence of Luke and the other Christians left an indelible mark on the island of Malta. In fact, there has literally been a 1,900-year unbroken chain of faith. Believers on the island of Malta tracing their spiritual lineage all the way back to when this storm-tossed group of guys were washed up on the beach. In fact, you can go to St. Paul uh, Shipwreck Church. Here's a picture of one of them. There are three on the island. One of them is a very elaborate Catholic parish, and I was thinking this is kind of more indicative of Paul. It's simple, this picture of simple faith, uh, and, and Paul made an impact. You make an impact where God washes you up in your life. We, only, we, we tend to minimize the impact we could potentially be making as, as light and salt for Christ. And so I see this beauty of, of those who are washed up ashore and those who receive them as being blessed. And it reminds me of a passage in Hebrews that tells us, do not neglect. Don't move past showing hospitality to strangers and foreigners 
For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. What if there are angels in the midst of the people that we tend to marginalize? And people we tend to overlook or look down on. What if there's angels in the midst who are missing opportunities to show hospitality to heaven-sent ones? I believe all people who are sent our way are sent by God. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with twin gods as a figurehead. I love how Luke points this out. So they're getting on this new boat, this vessel that is heading out of the port. They had actually ported in the island of Malta. They get on board, and, and Luke goes, oh yeah, there were the two Greek figureheads, these idols on, front, on the front of the ship. I quote here, from BKC, the twin gods are Castor and Pollux on the ship's figurehead. They were heavenly twin sons of Zeus and Leda, according to the Greek mythology. Supposedly, they brought good fortune to the mariners. And Luke's like, oh yeah, they had a couple of idols on there. Guess what was on the other ship that sunk? There were a couple of idols on the front of that ship. And it did them no good. It sank. And it points out the, the fallacy of living a life that is driven by luck or uh, trusting in horoscopes or superstition, the tossing of salt or the knocking on wood, all the stuff that we attempt to secure good luck, and I'm sure none of us employed them this week on Friday night's drawing for Mega Millions. I'm sure none of us bought a ticket, and I'm sure none of us are aware that on Tuesday the drawing is going to be for $1.6 billion. And some of us are like, oh, if I'm really good this week. And I'm sure that you're going to give a huge chunk of it to the church. I know that. That's totally in your heart. I'm going to give most of it away, half of it, at least a third. I'm sure like an eighth of it will be donated to charity. I, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred dollars. But what we need to realize is there's no such thing as luck. Luck is a fallacy. There is sovereignty. That God is in control. And we are under the providential care of the Lord. And some of us are like, well, then I sure hope his providential care leads to 1.6 billion. What would you do with it, by the way? Have you thought about that? No. Come, yes, you, you, whatever. What would you do if you got 1.6 billion on Tuesday? Just yell it out. What would you do? Pay off bills. <laughs> 1.6 billion, family. What else? Give some money to the church. Thanks, Michelle. Godly lady up there. What else? Buy an island? Yes. What did you say, Marvelous? I had no idea what you were talking about. Somebody got buy this guy a video game. If you win, can you buy Fabulous, Marvelous a video game? Thank you. What else? A Ferrari, and you'll enjoy that in about 10 years when you can drive. Yes? What? Give it to charity! Woo! Okay, so uh, moving on. Some of us are like, oh, no, I win all this money. So here's the deal. You're not driven by luck. We're in the hand of God. And so now in the hand of God, verse 12, they put in at Syracuse, they head north. We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, the south winds sprang up, so they got the seasonal favorable winds. And on the second day, we came to Puccioli. Puccioli. Mm -hmm. Here's a map. 
You guys aren't getting through a message without a map. Uh, I don't have my laser pointer, but you can imagine down here is Malta. They sailed first up to Sicily, uh, which is Syracuse, the port of Syracuse. Then they got to the tip of the boot of Italy, and then they sailed up and around to Puccioli, and there at the port of Naples, they began to unload the ship, and so Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, and other Christians who were aboard the boat were given shore leave. And guess what they found in this little port city? A church. Paul always wanted to get to Rome because he wanted to preach the gospel at Rome. I need to go to Rome to preach the gospel. The gospel hasn't preached. Well, they get there, and all of a sudden, verse 14, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. We're going to miss the significance if we don't slow down for a moment. This means that at the beginning of the book of Acts, this is literally tying the whole book together. In the beginning of the book of Acts, what happened in Acts chapter 2? What fell from the sky, fell from heaven? Come on, yell it out. What was it? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell on the church. Peter boldly proclaimed the gospel at the Feast of Pentecost. Who was present in the city? People from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish believers were there. They heard the gospel. They were saved. Some went back to Rome and planted churches, and then it made its way all the way to Puteoli. I quote here. This is significant because it shows that the gospel had already spread from Rome to this Italian seaport. No doubt a church had been planted in Rome by Roman Jews who had gone to the Pentecost feast, heard Peter's sermon, were saved, and returned home with the good news. The gospel had spread. These unknown saints that history has lost the names of, they are the ones responsible for bringing the church to Rome. And it says at the very end of verse 14, And so we came to Rome. They finished the last part of the journey on the Adian Highway. Here's a picture. You can actually walk this in, this, in Italy. This is a, a road. This would have taken them all the way to the gates of Rome. And as it, like I said, at the end of verse 14, it says, and so we came to Rome. Paul has made it. Many years before, the Lord told him that he would reach Rome. But a lot has happened since Acts chapter 23, verse 11, when the Lord appeared to him in a jail cell. He has faced attacks and rejection and imprisonment and a shipwreck and a crazy snake bite. Nothing could stop the Lord's will from being done. Nothing kept him from his ultimate destination. And I can say no matter what you are facing or what you have faced or what you face. Nothing will keep you from your ultimate destination that the Lord has set for those who walk under his sovereign care. And so with all this in mind, let's talk about some applications. The first application that comes to mind right from the text is being brought safely through. So much of our lives are spent in anxious worry. We sail from one storm to the next. More and more convinced that the next storm is going to ultimately swallow us. And I think we forget that the Lord is with us through it. That even when we sail through the, the greatest tempest, or we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when we're convinced that we're going to be swallowed by the waves of worry and fear, convinced that the Lord has taken us this far to let the vessel of our life sink, we need to be reminded that through it all, he is the one that is bringing us safely through. Think back 
for a moment. Can you think of a storm in your life that the Lord has carried you through? Many. For some of our seasoned saints, you can think of decades of God continually bringing you through. I want to encourage you, this is your application, take pictures, mental notes. You have no idea how much encouragement that destiny marker, that mile marker on the highway of your life where you go, oh yeah, I remember, I thought I was going to sink, I didn't sink. Oh yeah, I thought for sure, I was done, wasn't done. Oh yeah, I remember, I th- oh God has carried me. And you know what, you keep those stories bottled up because you're going to need them in the future because future storms are going to threaten to swallow you again and you need to be reminded time and again he has brought you safely through. And also, the testimony of other believers The testimony of Scripture, you store this up. You store this stuff up because I'm telling you right now, if you're going to try to interpret the character of God through circumstances, you are going to be convinced that he's dropped you. We must interpret the character of God through his Scriptures and through his providential care of us time and again. He has not taken you this far to let you sink. And even if this is the last portage you will sail to, He will carry you into eternity. He will bring you safely through. Secondly, does that encourage your heart? Is that medicinal? I feel like I need that medicine this week. Secondly, hospitality. Uh, It's kind of a dying art in our culture. So is simple kindness. How about respect for one another? I don't know if this is true, but was there ever a time where common decency prevailed? Or more so? I think it's easy to idealize the past and then like, look at the present and go like, ah, we're so terrible. Was common decency ever a part of our culture? Oh, oh I'm just going to assume that in that quietness there's some, something here. Um, I think some of our modern day sensibilities have, have given way to things that maybe are not as healthy. I would love to think that our wealth and affluence as a people has made us more generous or has made us more hospitable or grateful or kind. I don't necessarily see that though. I have found that as a culture, as affluent as we are, we are the most affluent people on earth. That's crazy. I think in that affluence, we've become greedier. More self-focused, more politically and philosophically divided. I can't believe how divided we are as a people. And as divided as we are as a church. We were once a people in a country known for, I say hospitality, there was some sense of welcoming shores. There's some sense of a beacon of hope that people are, are, are trying to reach. I don't know why we're so surprised that a lot of people in the world want to come here. Wouldn't you? You're telling me, if you were living in a place where you could not provide for your family, and you looked at your child who needed medicine, you wouldn't do everything you've got to do to get medicine in that child's mouth? Tell me right now you wouldn't do that. There is a reason why people want to come here. And as believers, be grateful that God has put you in a place that is a melting pot because it allows us to literally reach the nations by not even having to move. We don't even have to go overseas to reach the nations. God brings the nations here. And remember, our Christian faith should supersede our American faith. You all agree with that? So the reason I say all this, you know why I'm saying this, but... um, Please do not allow political viewpoint or agenda to be the justification for not obeying the greatest ethic. We are to love the Lord our God with what? Whole enchilada. And we are to love our neighbor 
as long as it doesn't cost us anything, and as long as they're not really messy, and as long as they look like us, sound like us, believe what we believe, right? I mean, those are the caveats to the greatest commandment. Oh, wait, there are no caveats. There are no loopholes. Why do you think we're called to love our neighbor, and our neighbor is defined as anybody in close proximity to us? Why do you think the Bible tells us we're to love our neighbor? Yes. <laughs> we're all brothers and sisters. From the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained praise and strength. Amen. We are brothers and sisters. I'll also add to that because God loves the world. And we, as his representatives, are to love the world, all people. In fact, all people that God brings us, brings our way. We are to love neighbor, even above self at times. Okay, so I've, I've driven that home. Be hospitable. I believe that God is going to wash some people up in your life this week and in our life and on the doorstep of our life. And I want to encourage you to see them as a gift sent from God. They may or may not be, but they may be just angelic hosts. That'd be crazy. For, and finally, you are making an impact. Some of us are... Okay, so when I first started the ministry, a, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine told me, Chris, you're going to be making more of an impact than you realize. There are times when it doesn't feel that way. Okay? And that's just the nature of all of our lives. We like question, are we making an impact at all? Well, I'll tell you, 276 storm-tossed men, and then out of that group, a very small group of that made a massive impact over three months on an island that they were shipwrecked on. In fact, for 1,900 years, there's been faith on that island where there was no faith. Why? Because God shipwrecked a couple of believers on that island. God is going to shipwreck us at times in places and in seasons where we're like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. There have literally been jobs where I've been there and I've been like, what am I doing here? Is this funny to you? You ever, you ever, you ever yell at God? <laughs> Sometimes I'm just like, oh, you think this is a joke? Uh, I call them my Captain Dan moments. Anyway, sometimes he puts you there so that you can be what the Bible calls us. We are called the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, you put it on a lampstand so it, it shines. And God is putting us in places of darkness so our light will shine. Let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen? I feel like this was just a good all-around message. Let's stand.